WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu. It's the Metro on 101.9 WDET. I'm Nick Austin. And I'm Tia Graham. Today on the program, new developments are happening in Gaza, but it's uncertain whether they will bring peace or more war. But first on the Metro, ceasefire activists are protesting President Biden's current stance in the Israel-Hamas war. They're calling for Michiganders to vote uncommitted in Tuesday's Democratic presidential primary. For his part, news reports indicate privately President Biden is frustrated by the actions of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Gaza. Despite this, publicly the president has been unwavering in his support of Israel, much to the dismay of many Michiganders with ties to the region. Michigan will be critical in the upcoming November election, but with Tuesday's Democratic primary seemingly all but decided, is the push to vote uncommitted an effective strategy. To learn more about the campaign and what it hopes to accomplish, we're joined by two of its members. Leila Elabed, who's the campaign manager for Listen to Michigan, and Abbas Alawia is the spokesperson for the campaign. Abbas and Leila, welcome to the Metro. Thanks so much, Nick. Happy to be here. Happy to have you both here. And I want to start with you, Layla, just to make sure we get an understanding of what the ultimate goal is for the campaign. So you can tell us in your own words, what are the goals of the uncommitted campaign? The goals of the uncommitted Listen to Michigan Vote Uncommitted campaign is to send a clear and powerful message to President Joe Biden, his administration and the Democratic Party that we need an immediate ceasefire now. Um, And until that happens, we are going to be uncommitted to Joe Biden's reelection in the primary on February 27th. Um, And our goal is to have a margin of victory of 10,000 votes. Um, This is based off of uh, Trump's win against Hillary Clinton in the Michigan primary uh, in 2016. And we think that is going to be the pressure needed to send that message to Joe Biden that he needs to change course now. Um, and save lives, save as many human life uh, as possible in in that region. Yeah, and we'll get into the strategic aspect of it a little bit more. But before we get to that, just to put a little bit more of that personal connection that you were getting Mm -hmm. to there, I want to pivot to you, Abbas, just to let folks know who might not be so familiar. I know many across the state are affected by this conflict. Can you share for folks who might not be as familiar uh, with this experience what it's been like for your community and relatives in Gaza, why this is so important? Yeah. So here in the state of Michigan, especially in southeastern Michigan, we have Arab and Muslim American communities who have an expertise that is deeply painful. And that is the expertise of knowing what it's like to survive U.S. funded bombs, knowing what it's like when that bomb drops, speaking from a place of expertise and urgency, telling our elected leaders that virtually unlimited funding for war and in this case, genocide is unsustainable. It's killing people we love. And it's not just Arab and Muslim American voters. It's also young people in this state who are coming of age in a time where on TikTok, on Instagram, on uh, on social media in general, they're getting to know the real everyday people in Gaza who are experiencing the mass destruction of their communities through war crimes that are being funded by our own tax dollars. And so this upcoming Tuesday, uh, uh, tomorrow, uh, February 27th, as many of us as possible in this state 
are going to go to the polls and vote uncommitted as a vote for peace, as a vote for ceasefire, and as a vote against genocide and war. President Biden needs to listen to us. We've been we've been yelling at the top of our lungs, please, you have to stop funding this this mass killing. And he hasn't heard us so far. And so the way that we're going to get the way that we that we can ensure that he'll hear us is at the ballot box. So as many of us as possible need to go out tomorrow and vote uncommitted. Yeah. And I understand that human connection, but this is a political strategy also that you're using right now, which means we have to analyze it from that bucket also. And uh, you mentioned that 10,000 number that was during uh, the how much, uh, again, uh, it had the impact that Trump had over Clinton back in 2016, but that was a relatively low turnout election. So let's just start here as I pivot back to you, Layla. Are you concerned that a disadvantage is showing if you're not able to get to that number of uncommitted votes might have a negative impact on uh, showing that the power of the voting bloc? No, not at all. According to data, um, Michigan absentee votes in this election are up by 60 percent. Um, we know that 20 percent of absentee and early votes have come out of the state have come from Dearborn alone. Um, and so we do expect that we will um, have the numbers. And, and according to recent polling, we are up on 9% of uncommitted votes um, in the state. So we are very optimistic. Um, and we know that uh, Democrats and Biden's core constituency are showing up at the ballot box to say that we need a immediate permanent ceasefire now to save as many uh, lives in Gaza as possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we continue this conversation, an adage that I hear from a lot of knowledgeable political figures who I trust is that voting blocks can accomplish more in the room than outside of it. Essentially, the idea that politicians are more responsible to reliable voting blocks than unreliable ones. Uh, Abbas, would you disagree with that assessment? Yeah, no, I wouldn't disagree with that assessment, but I would also urge people in the Democratic Party, uh, my, my fellow colleagues, um, and, and urge our president to consider the Arab American community, a community that used to vote mostly Republican on average prior to George Bush's disastrous foreign policy decisions. And it feels like now President Biden, after 20 plus years of a, of a voting bloc among Arab Americans, you know, including Arab Americans in, in our large uh, Democratic tent, President Biden, it feels like, is doing everything he can to alienate these people us who've been reliable Democratic voters. And and I that, that really worries me. It worries me for two reasons, Nick. I want to tell you about them. One is it worries me because I'm a survivor of war myself, and that's not an experience that is unique to me. So many people in our community are survivors too. And so it, I know how urgent it is for, for us to save that next child's life when over 13,000 children have been killed using our tax dollars. But also, I'm, I was a congressional staffer. I've worked for Michigan members, including Rashida Tlaib and Congressman Andy Levin, who both support this campaign, are urging voters to vote uncommitted tomorrow. And I was in the Capitol on January 6th. I know how dangerous Donald Trump is. I don't want him or his white supremacist buddies anywhere near the White House ever again. And it's precisely for that reason that I'm concerned because President Biden is alienating key voters here. He's threatening, he's threatening to, uh, to deliver an election where he's not giving voters who have Gaza top of mind anything to vote for. That's why we're doing this uncommitted campaign, to give voters a way of voting for peace. 
And Abbas, I just want to stick with you here, just hearing a little bit about what you've been saying and just, you know, growing up in the Warrendale community myself, just knowing my neighbors and just understanding certain things and learning new things, especially with everything that's going on. Social media has been a huge tool for me. TikTok has been a huge tool for me to learn and and, and understand the, the diversity around me, number one, but just understand what's truly happening on the ground. So how has social media helped engage young voters like you talked about a little bit earlier and how it's helped uh, uh open their minds a little bit more? Yeah, I think it's an excellent question. I mean, especially in a moment like this, of course, a moment of mass killing is a difficult moment in general. What we're experiencing now is that young people especially are live streaming war crimes as they're happening, genocide as it's happening. That is moving people in in a way that isn't easily captured in the polls. Okay, it's moving in people in a way like where they feel it in their soul that, hey, I, there's this journalist in Gaza that I've been following, Martez or Bissan, these are real people now, okay? They're not just another number among the 13,000 children who were killed or the 30,000 plus Palestinians who are killed. And so ultimately, I think, and you know, you, you mentioned your own experience growing up here in this region. I think, and and our movement thinks that the way to liberation, the way the way that we all get free, the way that we create an anti-war movement that that succeeds, an an anti, a movement that is against milita- militarized violence every time it rears its ugly head on our communities, is by being in relationship with one another, by getting to know each other's stories. That's what this campaign is doing. The uncommitted campaign is getting folks together in rooms, calling by the hundreds of thousands and texting. Um, you know, and engaging fellow voters um, in a way that the Democratic Party really ought to look at. Do you want to engage productively with our movement or do you want to continue ignoring and demeaning? I would hope that they would engage productively because ultimately what we're doing is getting people more engaged in our democracy rather than sitting in the the, the alienation that, that President Biden is creating by not by failing to differentiate his own policies from Netanyahu's. Yeah, Layla, if I can just jump in with one more here, and again, just getting back to the strategic aspect of this. I hear the pain, and I understand that. But if we look at the last election that actually had happened in Michigan, Biden carried it by 160,000 votes. You know, that is a far greater margin in a higher turnout election. So again, with this concern that it might not be even a voting block that might be able to get there, uh, the discussion I want to get back to, or at least give you an opportunity to answer, is... President Biden seems to be moving in some of his policies, coming out against, for example, uh, expansions of settlements most recently in Israel. Uh, Again, that discussion with having people who, you know, what would you say to a Biden official who would say, no, we're hearing you, your impact being made, just talking to us, protesting is having sufficient impact. You don't need to have the risk of potential the election in November. Um, I would disagree with that because right now we know that 80% of Democrats want a permanent ceasefire, support a permanent ceasefire, and 66% of Americans support a permanent ceasefire. That 80% is Biden's core constituency that has demanded, has protested, has demonstrated, has done die-ins. We've called our representatives. We've emailed our representatives. We've held countless rallies. um, And our rallying cries are falling on deaf ears. And now we have to take it to the ballot box for our voices to be heard. Um, And it is going to be Joe Biden and his administration and the Democratic Party that is going to be held accountable for their inactions um, and not giving 
voters the ceasefire that we are demanding right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, one more thing I guess I can get on. I mean, there are other, there's another side to this. There are folks who have relatives in Israel who, again, when the attack happened, the hostages came, they also have their concerns and fears also. I see you putting your hand up. I would say, is there a spot where we can find something that's mutual that you think everybody would get on board with, with the understanding of those concerns also, Layla? A permanent ceasefire would save lives on both sides. And that is what we need right now. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but we do appreciate you both coming in to share your perspective. Layla Elabed of the campaign, campaign manager for Listen, Listen to Michigan, as well as Abbas Alawiya, a spokesperson for the campaign. Thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. Thank you so much for having Thank us. You. Later in the hour, we'll be speaking with a representative from President Biden's campaign to hear him make the case for the re-election of the sitting president. As well, coming up with the author of a new book about the impact of one former principal at Fordson High School. Stay right there for the Metro. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at the University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new Master of Science degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. Admission is open to qualified applicants with a bachelor's degree in any field. Course selection is flexible with no prerequisites, four required courses, and six electives. Learn more at business.udmercy.edu. It's the Metro on 101.9 WDET, your daily source for news, arts, and culture, all the good stuff driving our region. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. And that was a really great conversation that Nick Austin just brought to us. And, you know, I always think about just learning, and I just learned a lot. You helped out too, Tia. You know, sometimes I'm just here for support. Hey, I support you too. Let's go. You know, we're just supportful people, (laughs) supporting people. We're supporting each other. But once again, you taught me a lot that last segment. I learned a lot, and I think about teachers and educators and some of my favorite teachers and educators who helped me in life, like Mrs. Doublefield from kindergarten all the way up to high school where I get to like Mrs. Baldwin or Miss Miss Carney. So oh yeah, Miss Baldwin, she was she's she was lit. Out. She's probably listening right now. Shout out to Miss Baldwin and Henry Ford Academy. But I just want to say uh, uh, to teachers out there, thank you so much. And one of our earliest mentors outside of home is our teachers. They are meant to guide us and to become quick learners and better people. But also after attending school, a lot of us don't give the flowers to the teachers who helped us grow. In a book that will be released next month, Ali Ahmad Badlala tries to honor a special educator in his life and the lives of many. Ali is the author of March 4th, From the Prison of Minds. The book details the life of Ali's father, Sayed Ahmad Mahmoud Fadlala, a former principal of Fort Fortson High School in Dearborn. Sayed died in 2017, and years later, Ali took up the memoir his father was writing to honor him and to reflect on the impact Sayed had on the lives of many Dearborn students. To talk about that impact, we have Ali here with us now. Ali, thank you for joining us on the Metro. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So Ali, you wrote this book March 4th about your father, Sayed. Tell us a little bit about who he was and why he had such a big impact, especially culturally and statistically, on Fortson High School and in that area. 
For sure. So my father, God rest his soul, is widely considered the most revolutionary principal in the history of Dearborn Public Schools. Uh, he started actually as a teacher, so I love the flowers to teachers. Um, but he soon thereafter became an administrator, and he inherited um, as a principal a failing middle school, one of the lowest performing middle schools in the state of Michigan, which was Stout Middle School. And uh, by the time uh, he was done, he was one of the highest performing middle schools in the state of Michigan. Um, and so a new superintendent took over Dearborn Public Schools, and he saw that Fortson High School was in a state of chaos, and uh, he forcibly reassigned my father to Fortson High School uh, midway through my senior year at Fortson. Um, and so it was kind of starting all over again, but on a much larger scale in terms of students and in terms of the, the level of chaos, unfortunately, corruption that was taking place at Fortson High. And uh, this book actually began as a memoir that my father was writing um, about his experience at Fortson High School between the end of 2004 and 2011 when he retired uh, prematurely, but but due to the amount of stress, lawsuits, attacks that he was enduring. Um, and so when he passed away, I had a half-finished manuscript, and I had to figure out how to complete his book. And I realized the only way to do that was to share my story as an alumnus. And, um, and so, yeah, it's a special project. Yeah, so, you know, the first thing that stood out in my mind. You said Stout Middle School, and that's one of the middle schools that I remember learning about and growing up and hearing about just being from the city of Detroit and just being in this area in general. Um, you know, where is it located again? It's uh, in West Dearborn. That's what I thought. So I heard about Stout a lot growing up, so it was very amazing to have that connection right now. So, you know, what were Syed's, your father's values as a principal? What were some of the things that he did and uh, that really made him stand out? Yeah, um, you know, he, he really had to, first of all, change the culture uh, there was a culture of low expectations. Um, one of the first things he did was host a, uh, if you've ever watched uh, the movie Lean On Me, mm -hmm. um, this was a similar circumstance where the the uh, you know environment was rowdy, um, it was chaotic, the ex expectations were low. Um, and so he had to take things policy by policy. There was a policy at Fortson High School, and it was the only school in the district that had such a policy where students had to wear their IDs and show their IDs at all times. And um, one of the first things he did was re was eliminate that policy because it was resulting in students being suspended by the dozens, uh, losing uh, you know hundreds of hours of instructional time. Um, he set up three assemblies that where he introduced himself as the new sheriff in town, and um, you know it was dubbed by by students and staff as the new sheriff in town <laughs> assemblies. So it very much had that uh, lean on me feel where he had to just set a new new culture of high expectations for uh, teachers and students alike. And, you know, the book you know, was originally a memoir. And, of course, like you said a little bit earlier, you took it up yourself, you finished it up, you added in your own personal experiences. So, you know, why was it so important that, number one, you finished this book, you made sure that you completed it, but especially adding in your own experiences as an Arab Muslim American growing up in Dearborn? It's a great question. I, and I, I think you just hit on it. Um, I think, you know, we're often an invisible identity. Um, I, I'm not much into politics, but... I do think, you know, not having a box to check on an application or not being visible in that sense on the U.S. Census uh, plays a big role for us as Arab and Muslim Americans. And uh, we often don't see the extent to which, um, you know, the bigotry, the Islamophobia uh, that our community end has endured for decades, especially post 9-11, um, impacts our, our psyche, you know, as, as we strive to try to fit in in society. Um, we often lose that sense of, uh, religion and culture that, uh, you know, we, is, is near and dear to us. Um, so for me, it was, number one, 
uh, giving you the opportunity to see Fortson High School from the perspective of student and principal and what I had survived for four years before my father took over. Um, but the number two, going beyond Fortson to, like, like you hit on, you know, fl- reflect on what it means to be Arab and or Muslim in America and what were the, uh, the lingering impacts of being a Fortson High alumnus and growing up in Dearborn um, you know, on me as a, as a person. Yeah, which is, you know, pretty heavy when you think about everything that was going on, especially like you hit on uh, after 9-11 or during 9-11. Your father was an educator during that time. You were also a Dearborn resident, but your whole family. And in 2001, you know, of course, just like now, a lot of anti-Arab and lots of anti-Muslim sentiment. So if you can just dive into that a little bit more, what was it like um, uh, growing up, especially in 2001 and as we continue to go forward today? And I just think about some of the things that you were talking about, how when your father took over at Fortson, there was this, this low expectation. That means that the kids were feeling low, the, the staff was feeling low. So it's 2001. We have things that are moving forward. What were some of the things that you were feeling at that time in 2001 and beyond? For sure. Uh, so Fortson High School, you know, great, great uh, football program, a uh, great history uh, in terms of sports, the pride, the culture. It's, re- it's really strong. Um, over 2,500 students. Uh, but um, you know, at the time of 9-11, uh, I try to paint this picture in the introduction of the book where um, within, within hours uh, there were bomb threats happening at the school. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the next day there was a, a box covered in tape left uh, in B Hall and we had to evacuate the building. Um, as a football player, you're lining up and you're hearing, you know, towelhead, terrorist, Sand N word, you know these mm-hmm. are these are the slurs that are constantly being hurled at you from from across, um, you know the the line, um, and then you know there were uh, there was a, a right wing blogger and lawyer in the community that was constantly attacking both my father and the community. Uh, Dearborn became Dearbornistan, uh, Fortin High became Hezbollah High, um, and so uh, there there was just that climate of hate, and unfortunately. Uh, many teachers in our building, many board members uh, in our school board ascribe to that type of ideology and, uh, you know, we're doing their best to uphold it. And uh, I, I wish I could say this was all history. This is still very much present day. It is. It is. So, you know, my last question for you before I let you go is, uh, you know, how do you think the lessons your father taught you and taught everyone around you, but especially you, uh, helped you navigate your own identity? That's a great question. Uh, I, You know, I my father was my my guide my light back to my true self. Um, he helped me uh, take pride in my uh, religious, my spiritual uh, identity. Um, and of course, he always held uh, education high as a standard and as uh, the path to prosperity. Um, you know, not just in terms of our career successes, but also just, um, you know, being able to uh, overcome the stereotypes, the Islamophobia, just learning more about who you are, where you come from, uh, is a path to healing. So a big part of this book is that mental health journey that I was on, and I did struggle a lot with my mental health, um, uh, you know, and um, my father was very much, you know, through his through his love, through his kindness, through his education, um, you know, helped me, helped me heal. And where can we find the book? It is available on all platforms. It is a bestseller on Amazon right now, so already we're excited about that, but it's officially released on March 4th. Thank you very much, Ali Imod Fadlala. You are the author of March 4th from the Prison of Minds. Thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. Thank you for having me.
This is the Metro on 101.9 WDET as I'm Nick Austin with your host Tia Graham and Flint City Council member Eric Mays died on Saturday. He was 65 years old. Mays was elected to city council in 2013 and one of the first elected officials to bring to light Flint's water quality. He grew to national attention as his fiery way of making points during city council meetings began circulating on social media. Classmate and U.S. Representative Dan Kildee said in a statement Mays was re-elected by constituents for his bold and unwavering voice. Nick, I just have to jump in here because Please. Eric Mays, once again, I found him on social media, <clears throat> excuse me, and he just kind of, he, he filled you with this sense of there's a person who's in city council who actually really cares about the people that they're, that they're working for. So it's really, it's really disheartening to see that he passed away because he was really onto something, especially with things that were happening in 2024 in Flint. So, you know, happy that you uh, were able to read that story. Yeah, yeah. Well, happy to let people know about it, although we wish it was in better circumstances. Yeah. He will be be missed. Again, Flint City Council member Eric Mays passing away Saturday. He was 65 years old. This is the Metro on 1019 WDET. I am Nick Austin, but as I understand it, Tia, mm-hmm. got a pretty interesting uh, milestone coming up later yes. this year. Yes, I cannot wait uh, to get into it with Elliot Wilhelm, the winter 2024, 2024, 2024 season marks a milestone. It has been 50 years since the Friends of the Detroit Film Theater began screaming important historical films inside the DIA. We are joined by Elliot Wilhelm, the curator of the film for the Friends of the Detroit Film Theater. He's here to talk to us a little bit about what's happening at the Detroit Film Film Theater as well, what we can expect for the rest of the year. Elliot, hello. Hi, Tia. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I just want to throw this out there. I've known you since I was like 24. I've been working at PBS. I was an intern, so I've been working with you for a while. And that's how old I was when the Detroit Film Theater started. <laughs> yeah! So, yeah. How Look about at this? that. I know. So, you know, what's happening right now at the Detroit Film Theater? We have so much going on that it's it's kind of amazing and wonderful um, to, to still have that kind of energy that we had back in the early days, but even more so. One thing we're really excited about is an exhibition that the DIA has uh, going on right now. It's called Regeneration Black Cinema. 1898 to 1971. Uh, It's on loan to us from the Academy Museum in Los Angeles, um, and that's the same Academy that gives out the Academy Awards. They opened this museum finally in in 2022, and this was one of their earliest exhibitions. And it tells um, the the history of African-American participation in American film from film's very earliest days in the, uh, the late portions of the 19th century, up through 1971, 1971 being the reason that the exhibition stopped, um, is is that at that point, a kind of agency was achieved for African-Americans who were interested in film, not just in acting before the cameras, but in writing, directing, producing, and having a hand in distribution as well. In conjunction with the exhibition, uh, which runs at the museum through June 23rd, the Detroit Film Theater is running a program of films that are mentioned in the exhibition um, and that are germane to the exhibition so that people can see them in their entirety because the exhibition's got lots of uh, references to these films. It's got lots of clips from many of these films. But we find that people who have been coming for the last uh, two to three weeks now and seeing these films every week, um, sometimes with live musical accompaniments if they're silent films like yesterday, Um, We're getting hundreds of people at each of these screenings. It is so gratifying because so many of these films have just 
uh, not been seen by by audiences since their original exhibition in the in the 1920s 30s 40s and and the exhibition's doing so well the film portion as well as the um, exhibition itself that even though the exhibition closes on June the 23rd the film portion is going to continue through the end of the calendar yeah. year because there's so much so much to show, so much to see. Yeah, so, <clears throat> excuse me again. So I'm thinking just about what you're saying. This is, number one, Big 50. You've been doing this for 50 years. Oh, um, yeah. What does it feel like celebrating 50 <laughs> years? And you talk about like so many people coming to the screenings. What does it feel like to continue to see enthusiasm for film? It's, it's amazing, um, but in a way it's not surprising because I've had so much faith in the motion picture and the experience of seeing motion pictures in theaters uh, with audiences. Look, I've been around so long that I remember, uh, well, I don't really remember the invention of television as being a threat to movies. I do remember uh, the, the the whole concept of, well, these video cassettes, these VCRs that people are getting, that's going to stop people from going to the movies because they'll just be able to take movies home with them and they'll be able to take them out of the library. That happened. Um, movie theaters were still in business. DVDs, Blu-rays, streaming, cable TV, um, yeah. uh, the plague. I mean, you you name it. And there is every reason for the, the theatrical experience to no longer exist except for one big one, which is that it's great. And it's incomparable to see a film on a big screen with others um, having a, a, an emotional experience meeting each other after the screening, perhaps for the first time. After 50 years, I can't tell you how many people uh, got, got married after a date at the, at the DFT um, or, or had some sort of relationship that changed their lives. They might have gone on to making films or their, their kids went on to, to make films. Um, it's become something that is almost self-perpetuating, except it's really not. It's putting on a show every night and, well, every night, most weekends, and making sure that yeah. the films remain relevant, international yeah. films, uh, independent films from yeah. all over the world, as well as special programming like the Regeneration series. So I'm going to have to let you go pretty quickly here. <clears throat> but one of my last questions to you is, you know, uh, since you've been with the DFT 50 years, you've been screening so many great mu movies, films, historical films, teaching so many people. What has been your favorite part about being with the DFT and what are you most looking forward to? Oh, the, the favorite part still is standing in the back of the theater or sitting in the back of the theater, um, whether there are 80 people in the room or a thousand people like there were yesterday for the Oscar nominated shorts program, yeah. which goes on for another couple of weeks and listening to them respond um, as, a, as a group mm -hmm. or as individuals, but as, as a group to what's happening on the screen, that that experience is something that is, is electric to them at that moment. And it's, it's something that watching a movie privately, individually cannot achieve. Um, and that has not changed in a half century, the, the joy of, of experiencing that. Um, and it's, it's the only thing that's better is just going to the movies <laughs> on your own but standing in the back and, and listening to people uh, respond is, is just a joy Elliot Wilhelm is the cur curator of film for the Friends of Detroit Film Theater at the DIA thank you so much for joining us on the Metro we will definitely have you back soon to talk more about what's going on great thank you Tia this is the Metro on 1019 WDET we'll get into those making the case for President Biden when we return Welcome. 
Welcome back to the Metro on 1019 WDET, your daily source for local and regional arts, news, and culture. I am Tia Graham. And I am Nick Austin. And we heard a little bit earlier from those making the uh, case for uncommitted in an upcoming primary. But here in Michigan, when you look at the polls, President Biden, he's struggling a little bit right now, despite passing significant legislation. So what might be the disconnect between voters and the president as he seeks re-election? To help make the case for President Biden, we have Michael Tyler, who is the communications director for President Biden's re-election campaign. Michael, welcome to the Metro. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I'm happy to have you here also, because this is something that seems like a disconnect, uh, passing so much legislation, but Biden's been struggling in the polls here in Michigan, especially, which can be like a microcosm of the U.S. What do you think voters are missing and what is the case for Biden? What are they missing here? Well, listen, we're we're not going to take any voter for granted. We obviously expect this to be an incredibly close and competitive uh, election, as all modern presidential elections are at this point. I think as people wake up and realize we're in election year, uh, they're going to hear from this president and this campaign about the historic record of accomplishment uh, that we've seen under President Biden. Right. You got to remember, he came in facing a multitude of crises when he took office. Right. We had the worst. Uh, public health crisis in a century. We had the worst economic crisis since the Great Recession, and we had democracy on the brink. Um, And he got to work on day one, and the result has been 15 million new jobs. We've been lowering costs for Americans, 800,000 manufacturing jobs, uh, inclusive of states like Michigan. Um, And we've obviously restored American democracy here and been fighting for it um, around the world, right? And so the record of accomplishment uh, is what people in Michigan are going to hear. And they're also going to hear uh, the stark choice. On the other side, you have Donald Trump, who, when he was in office, Obviously, he governed on an agenda of fear, division, chaos, and inspired violence. And so now he is running a campaign that is even more extreme uh, than last time. Every single day on the stump, he's out here openly rooting for the economy to crash. He's bragging about his role in overturning Roe v. Wade. We're seeing the consequences of that play out right now uh, in states like Alabama, for example. Um, And he's promising to uh, weaponize the the Department of Justice and go after his political enemies if he's able to regain power. So the stakes are incredibly high uh, for the American people and for folks in Michigan. And they're going to see that day in and day out over the course of the campaign right now. We're confident we keep putting in the work in communicating this president's historic record of accomplishment, his vision for the future, and contrast that against all the damage and harm that Donald Trump uh, is promising to inflict if he's able to regain power, that we're going to be successful on Election Day. Yeah, well, let's get into that messaging then. You're saying day in and day out, perform that messaging. But right now, one of the things people are concerned about with President Biden is age and things like not doing, for example, the Supreme or excuse me, the Super Bowl interview or maybe his lack of uh, being out there uh, on the stump and making the case to voters has some concern. Hey, maybe he's a great president, but will he be a great politician to win voters? Uh, What are you going to do or what are you guys doing to get that message out there? Can President Biden be out there daily making this case himself to voters? Yeah, yeah. Well, he certainly has been right to kick off the year. uh, The president has been out on the stump pretty relentlessly. We kicked Mm. off um, with speeches in places like Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. He went down to Mother Emanuel in Charleston. He's been crisscrossing the country uh, ever since to kick off the year. Um, and you're going to see the president, the vice president, and others continue to do that, to spread uh, his message, his vision for the future uh, moving forward. And we're going to continue to, again, contrast that against uh, Donald Trump. I think if you raise the issue of age, right, first of all, this, this uh, campaign is not going to be 
uh, a contrast in age given Donald Trump's age, but it will certainly be a contrast of vision and of values, right? As I said, Donald Trump is running a campaign based on revenge and retribution uh, and to serve himself and folks like his ultra-wealthy friends. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Joe Biden is waking up every single day fighting to make life better for the American people. Yeah. Uh, the proof is in the pudding on the accomplishments, and that contrast is going to be front and center for the American people yeah. every day on the campaign trail. Yeah, let me jump in here then, because one of the things that's really important seems to Michigan, especially with this push for uncommitted on Tuesday, which I know you're aware of, is President Biden's policies related to Gaza. And while we hear the stories about him not being in support of Netanyahu's decisions, Israel's decisions over there, publicly his support has been relatively unwavering. So what is the case that you make to those who are saying, hey, why is his public stance different from his private stance? Is he going to move on this? Can you square that circle and balance uh, the concerns of folks have in Gaza with those who are supportive of Israel? Well, yeah, I think the president has been making his stance uh, pretty clear publicly, right? He takes folks' concerns uh, very, very seriously, right? It's why he has made it clear that every loss of innocent life weighs on him. It's why he's working relentlessly uh, to both get hostages back safely and work towards a just and lasting peace. And frankly, this is going to be a stark, uh, you know, contrast between uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, right? Uh, the president also, as it relates to the uncommitted campaign, is making it clear that he understands, right, that this is a challenging moment for many Americans. Um, he understands the passion, but this campaign and this president are not going to take any single vote for granted. Um, frankly, this is one of the differences, I think, between Democrats and the MAGA Republicans, right? We welcome uh, a diversity of opinion, a diversity of voices, and we listen to them and we learn from one another. Yeah. That's what you're seeing from, from many Democrats, right? You're seeing that from people like uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Representative Maxwell Frost, Sean Fain there um, at UAW in Michigan, right, who don't necessarily agree with the president on every single issue or every single iteration, but are out here yeah. campaigning for him every single day because yeah. they understand, A, that he's been the most consequential president in modern history, uh, but B, they also understand the stakes of this election as it relates to our opponent in Donald Trump. Yeah, Michael Tyler, I know I have limited time with you. I appreciate the time. Hey, depending on what happens, well, regardless of what happens after the primary tomorrow, you got to promise to come back because there's more conversation to have here. All right. I would love to. I would love to. And I would just uh, be remiss if I did not put in a plug to your listeners to uh, make sure they go vote tomorrow, 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Go to IWillVote.com to uh, find your polling location. All right. Michael Tyler, communications director for President Biden's reelection campaign. Michael, thanks so much for joining us on the Metro. Thank you. Metro on 101.9 WDETFM, your daily source for news, culture, arts that's moving our region and our city. Taking a quick look at the weather forecast today, partly sunny skies with a high near 52 degrees. Tonight, thunderstorms are expected. Actually, tomorrow, thunderstorms are expected uh, with rain continuing until around 2 p.m. It will be warmer with a high of 62 tomorrow and Wednesday. Expect a little rain with a high around 54 degrees. Now, continuing the conversation, there are two conflicting initiatives going on in Gaza. On the one hand, negotiators are working on a temporary ceasefire. On the other, Israel's prime minister is planning a new offensive into southern Gaza. NPR's Daniel Estrin spoke with host Michelle Martin about Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plan. 
Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is still insisting that Israel's next military objective is Rafah. This is the southernmost city in Gaza. And as Israeli troops have been sweeping from north Gaza to central Gaza to south Gaza, this is the last part of Gaza where Israeli troops have not yet entered. It's where Israel says most of the remaining Hamas battalions are left. And here is what Prime Minister Netanyahu said this weekend on CBS. Once we begin the Rafah operation, the intense phase of the fighting is weeks away from completion. Not months, weeks away from completion. But the U.S. has been warning against this operation. Um, This is an area where more than a million Palestinians have been sheltering. And so last night, the Israeli military presented plans to Israel's war cabinet, uh, plans on how they will evacuate Palestinians from that area and and their battle plans there as well. So all of this is, is Israel signaling to the U.S. that, you know, despite the objections of its most important ally, Israel, does intend to move forward in Rafah. Now, tell us more about that deal being negotiated. Where do the talks stand now? And what are the main points of agreement so far, as we know? Well, we have heard from an Egyptian official close to the talks who spoke with NPR uh, that the next stage of the negotiations are going to be held in Qatar. Uh, Israeli, Egyptian and U.S. intelligence officials will be meeting and they're following up on a meeting held late last week in Paris. And they're working off of a basic framework here, which would be a six week ceasefire and uh, the release of some Israeli hostages exchanging them for some Palestinian prisoners. So the Israeli media are now reporting that uh, what they're going to be working out are some of the details, like the number of Palestinian prisoners uh, they're willing to release. Also, part of these talks we're hearing are discussions for a new technocratic Palestinian government to manage uh, all of the Palestinian territories, uh, Gaza and the West Bank, when the war is over. And to that end, the Palestinian Authority government submitted its own resignation today. There is this sense of urgency, Michelle, to reach some big deal here for at least a, a temporary ceasefire before the Muslim holy month of Ramadan begins in just two weeks. And Daniel, finally, but certainly not least important, can we hear more about the conditions in Gaza? I mean, we're nearly five months into this, and there's been massive destruction as we, as you've been reporting elsewhere in Gaza. Tell us about conditions. Yeah, the United Nations is reporting significant food shortages and extreme hunger. Um, the last time the UN was able to deliver food to northern Gaza was more than a month ago. And the Israeli cabinet discussed plans to try to get aid safely to northern Gaza. Part of the problem has been um, when aid enters from Egypt into Gaza, Palestinians have, have stolen aid from the trucks. It just shows that sense of desperation there. Israeli strikes continue. We could see a grim new milestone uh, by the end of the week. It's approaching 30,000 Palestinians killed, according to Gaza health authorities. That was NPR's Michelle Martin speaking with reporter Daniel Estrin. This is The Metro. That's right, Tia. This is the Metro on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin. I know you're saying, Tia, you're saying, Nick, I just told them. Yeah. Why are you telling them again? So they know. So they know. They can remember. Exactly. And letting you know about things going on, not only just locally, but also nationally, as the Supreme Court is hearing arguments over social media laws adopted by Florida and Texas in 2021. This could affect how social media platforms regulate posts by users. The laws were made to address conservative complaints that social media companies were liberal-leaning and censored users based on conservative viewpoints. 
find out what happens there. Always love monitoring the Supreme Court, Tia. You know, especially on social media. You like the Supreme Court aspect of it. I just like the social media aspect of it. There's something for everybody. Everyone. That's what the Metro is. It's something for everyone. News, arts, culture. That's right. And coming up, we'll hear how Southeast Michiganders are feeling about our economy and the upcoming presidential election. Metro on 1019 WDETFM. I am Tia Graham, and of course, like Nick Austin's right here with me. It is true. I am here. And Tia, did you know AT&T is giving customers $5 who were impacted by last week's cell phone network outage? A whole $5? That's right. The outage left thousands of people without cell phone service on Thursday. AT&T says the service disruption was caused by an error in coding and not a cyber attack. And because of it, all you AT&T folks... Five bucks richer. Five, Five dollars you didn't dollars. have. There you go. That's like what? Your bill 55, now it's 50. That would be the math. Wow. That's amazing. Also, really annoying because it's not the customer's fault. Five bucks. I mean, I guess that's how much it is a day. I don't know what they, how it, they calculate. Maybe prorated, right? Yeah. How much of your service did you actually lose for your Five dollars worth. Perhaps. But what if money is my phone and I'm making money on my phone? I lost a lot more money than five bucks. All right. Well, you can take it up with the court. But, you know, that's <laughs> that's talking about the economy as I hear it to you. And by many measures, the economy is in good shape. Wages and hiring are up. Unemployment is low and inequality is shrinking. But despite those realities, some Americans are pessimistic about the state of things. WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter traveled across Metro Detroit with voters to speak with voters about the economy and how it will impact their vote tomorrow and in November. My name is Derek Overton. As far as I'm concerned, I'll take Biden any day over the lunacy that I see in Trump. We had supply chain issues during the pandemic, but I think what a lot of these manufacturers figured out is that let's slow the flow of product through the supply chain to keep prices higher. You know, the economy is doing well, as far as I'm concerned. Don Sturck, I don't think Biden's done at all. Everything's everything's doubled. At least when Trump was in there, I can say one thing, it stayed the same. Gas was the same for four years. We need to start building our own stuff again. Put sanctions on China so we can, at least if they're sending stuff over here, they gotta pay just like we do over there. My name is uh, Mustafa Hossein. After COVID, it's affected, especially with the, the Uber driver, we realize it because the prices are very cheap for us, you know, worth it even to drive. I see some trips here from here to the airport with 15 bucks. To be honest, in Trump time, everything was going up, but I can't judge. When Biden came, there's a lot of challenge came with him which is coronavirus. What was this yard like? Well, I do like Trump's values. I like what he stands for. I like a businessman. Do I like some of his tweets and some of his language? No, but that's Trump. I, I like the results. I like for four years, our economy was doing fantastic until COVID hit, which was a hell of a curveball for him. I just think the country was rolling along great. Melissa, Marecki. I mean, I'm a two-person dual-income family. So we aren't experiencing the hardship that I know a lot of other people are. But I do see, I mean, the kids 
I work with. There are a lot of high-risk families and stuff like that, and it's definitely hitting a lot of people pretty hard. I really don't see the appeal in Trump. Not a fan. Pashko, weak guy. I don't think either one of them is fit to be the next president of the United States. If I had to choose one or the other, I guess I would I would go with Biden because Trump doesn't like to lose, so he'll want to get even. Those are the voices from some Metro Detroit voters. They spoke with WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter. This is the Metro on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. And, you know, just taking a quick look at the weather forecast for your week today. Partly sunny with a high near 52. Tomorrow, expect rain showers, thunderstorms possibly, with a high near 62. Wednesday, mostly cloudy with a high around 54 degrees. Do expect rain most of that day. Thursday, mostly sunny with a high of 38. So be prepared for the wind, the cold to come back. I mean, it is winter. And then Friday, March 1st, mostly sunny with a high near 48 degrees. And you know, Nick, I think about some of the weather that's coming up. I see and feel the spring is popping up. I'm wondering if Ryan is going to be bringing in some like some cool, warm weather music or is he just kind of vibing out today? Question mm. to you, Mr. Ryan Patrick Hooper. That's a great question. Um, you guys are really good at, at what you do. I'd have to say <laughs> that uh, when you're dealing with the weather, you have two options when you do a music show. You either have to match that vibe or really violently go against it yeah. and try to bring people out of like a cold, wintry slump. Today, it's quite nice out, yeah. and I think we're going we're gonna to ride with that vibe because it's Monday. We're coming into the show red hot. I got some new music from Super Shy. That's really going to be fantastic. Get your feet moving a little bit. We're going to burn some calories to kick off the show. And then for some deep cuts, I got some Motown covers. Have you ever heard the group Fanny do The Temptations? Ain't that peculiar? It's going to blow your mind. You can only hear it on In the Groove with me, Ryan Patrick Cooper, coming up here on WDET. Thanks, Nick and Tia. That's right. The In the Groove coming up at noon today, and that's going to do it for the Metro for February 26, 2024. You can listen to recent episodes online at WDET.org, and make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. The show is produced by Sam Corey, David Lyons, and Jack Philbrandt. Our technical director is Nate Bender. Music is done by Sam Bobian. Our news director is Jerome Vaughn, and our Program director is Adam Fox. The Metro is a WDET production, a listener-supported service of Wayne State University. If you like what you hear and want to support the Metro, consider becoming a member at WDET.org slash donate. Thank you for listening. Of course, you're listening to WDETFM Detroit Public Radio, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Nick, you have a great week, everyone out there. Have a great week. And make sure to vote. Remember, tomorrow is the presidential primary. Make your voice heard. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. More information at business.udmercy.edu.